Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest threat to public safety coming from ghost guns, one of which was used in the recent mass shooting in the streets of Baltimore. Teenagers are buying these ghost gun kits without serial numbers and any restrictions on mail-order sales, with more than 50 shootings involving teens using ghost guns since 2019 and 25,785 ghost guns seized by police nationwide last year, a 30% increase over 2021 when 19,344 ghost guns were recovered. Joining us to discuss how Texas Federal District Judge Reed O'Connor is siding with ghost gun manufacturers to say that these kits aren't firearms is Ryan Boosie, a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies and was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award. He is currently providing consulting services to progressive organizations with the aim to undo the country's dangerous radicalization and is the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Then we'll get an assessment of the just-concluded NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, and discuss what emerged from the meeting with James Golgaya, professor in the School of International Relations at American University, a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University, and visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He was director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council, and his latest books include Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. We'll discuss his article at War on the Rocks, NATO, China, and the Vilnius Summit. Then finally, we'll examine the extent to which Turkey's Erdogan did not steal the limelight at the summit and did not get much, although the deal with Sweden's entry will not be ratified by Erdogan's parliament until October, giving him more time to haggle for more concessions. Joining us is Henri Barki, Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence, and has authored, co-authored, and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question and Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. Joining us now is Ryan Boosie, a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies and was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award. Currently, he provides consulting services to progressive organizations with the aim to undo the country's dangerous radicalization, and he's the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Boosie. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Ryan. And the Washington Post is carrying an alarming story today about how teenagers are buying ghost guns in record numbers and shooting yeah. each other. I mean, there's a tragic story about a teenager uh, who had was a drug dealer and had uh, mental issues shooting two uh, fellow teenagers, 17-year-old Urshina Laser and uh, Calvin Van Pelt, with a ghost gun over some stupid sort of teenage argument, you know. And yeah. there are th- these uh, companies that are so identifiable, ADP Builder of Florida and Polymer 80 of Nevada. Of Nevada. And yeah. why can't they be shut down? Well, I think first, um, for your listeners, they sh- people should understand what a ghost gun is. Um, and I'll back up just a bit. So um, if a, 
forever, uh, I say forever, but for the last 120-some years, when um, a gun is made, it receives a serial number at a certain place during the manufacture of that gun. So if, if you think of some blocks of steel that are manufactured, at some point along the process, the block of steel becomes enough like a gun that it becomes serialized, and that is a requirement of BATF and federal regulation. And that serial number then is used to track the gun, but importantly, it's also used um, to, during the purchasing process because any serialized gun uh, that is sold through uh, licensed dealers, you must go through a background check to purchase that gun. A ghost gun, uh, sometimes often referred to as an 80% receiver gun, what happens is the manufacturer works that piece of steel or various pieces of steel right up to the point where it's legally bound to have a serial number and stops right there. That, therefore, it's not required to have a serial number. So, you know, in simple terms, if they were to take it another five seconds of machining, it would need a serial number, but they stop just before it becomes a gun, and therefore they're not legally required to, uh, to put a serial number on it. Then they sell that gun as a ghost gun, in other words, a, a gun without a serial number or a name, and with instructions about how the person who buys it can use common, relatively common, um, you know, just like garage sort of drills and things like that to, to take it the remainder of the way and make it into a gun. And so there is no licensing required. There is no background check required. There is no minimum age on it because it's not sold through a licensed retailer. It's not even a gun. Technically, it's not even a gun when it's sold. Therefore, kids and criminals and anybody else who wants to evade the, back, the federal background check system can simply buy a ghost gun and evade any sort of check. So, yeah, that's, that's what it is. And the reason it can't be shut down is because technically they are legal at current. They are not a gun when they're sold. They're an 80% gun. But as the Washington Post article points out, Ryan, a child can buy one. There's no background checks. You don't even need a bank account. You can go to a 7-Eleven and get a debit card and put money in it and buy a gun for, what, $800. And That's uh, there's also, last year, police departments seized at least 25,785 ghost guns nationwide. And in 2021, the number of guns recovered was... Seven, 19,344. So you can see the trajectory of more and more, and there have been guns, more and more of these ghost guns uh, on the market, and there have been 50 yeah. incidents involving teens with ghost guns since 2019. So, Well, it's important to know that the trajectory of the industry is such that ghost guns and anything associated with them used to be a, a, quite a pariah. Um, while I was in the industry, these these were things on the edge of legality that really decent companies, decent people did not propagate because everybody knew the dangerous nature of them and that they were skirting, really skirting the meaning of, uh, of, of our federal gun regulations. That has changed today. And the industry generally has has fought to um, reduce or to hold the line on the regulation or lack of regulation of ghost guns and they have even started to welcome them into trade shows as like a you know a vested trusted member of the of the of the shooting industry my point here is is that is that they're no longer kind of on the fringe of gun society they're now being welcomed in as a trusted member and that means the companies are getting much much larger they're selling many many like tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of these things and when money's involved, um, you can see why, why they're welcomed in. So the owner of Polymer 80, Lauren Kelly, he's been accepted back into the fold. Of course, he takes this sort of self-righteous position that he's on the front lines protecting the Second Amendment. But the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. I mean, have, has anybody noticed that we are no longer secure and free in America, you can't go to a church, you can't go to a mall, you can't go to a cinema, you can't go to school without the threat of a mass shooting. Well, that, so that the way that ghost guns are being treated by the firearms industry, um, and, I, and I make this point in my book, these things are forward indicators of our national politics. And you could say the same sort of thing about QAnon or conspiracy theories or um, 
whatever ridiculous thing Trump said today. Like a year ago, you could have said, my gosh, those things are crazy. Are they really going to be welcomed in by the Republican Party? Surely not. But the way the, the structure of the right wing of our of our politics is such that the thing ever only gets pulled further and further right. Point here is on guns. So, too, is that happening on guns where the industry used to self-police and kind of shouted down this stuff, never propagated it, didn't want to be in the same corner with this kind of thing. Now the fringe pulls it ever further right. And so the industry feels like it must accept or almost celebrate everything further on the right. And so, yes, these ghost gun type things are, if not if not overtly celebrated, they are seen as emblematic as the fight against evil big brother government, and we must fight all gun regulations, and therefore the polymer 80 fight or the the ghost gun fight is our fight. So you you see it's exactly like the the same thing on the right side of our politics. Well, also the judiciary is being pulled to the right because the effective statute is the Gun Control Act of 1968 that mandates the serial numbers, but the U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor in Texas, he's ruled against that, and he's just last month, he issued a decision vacating that rule, and now the case, well, it hasn't, but it's likely to go before the Fifth Circuit. So what's happening there? I mean, what's his reasoning? So so for essentially almost 100 years, not quite, but after the, the... the famous or infamous gangland murders in the 1930s, there was a law passed called the National Firearms Act. Um, it's referred to in the industry as the NFA. It was passed in 1934. And um, that law generally generally regulated firearms in the United States, that along with a Supreme Court case um, that goes by the moniker Miller. And Miller essentially said that Supreme Court, that gun regulations would be decided as constitutional or not in the United States by, importantly here, balancing the safety versus the safety of society versus um, the the need to maintain the Second Amendment freedoms. So it was a balancing test. Um, we had a Supreme Court case, which was authored by um, by Scalia about 10 years ago. And then most recently, we had the Bruin case, which the majority was authored by Clarence Thomas. And the reason that this serial number case that you just mentioned is going to go to the Fifth Circuit and may get thrown out is because the, the test that Thomas mandates is this originalism uh, test. He did away with the balancing test, right? There's no more balance between safety and freedom. Now, his, his reasoning says you must, ba- you must test a uh, Second Amendment case based upon this originalist standard that essentially says if a law didn't exist in 1791 or 1868, when the first and when the when the Bill of Rights and then the Fourteenth Amendment were ratified, if it didn't exist then, then it's going to be deemed unconstitutional. Well, guns guns weren't mandated to be serialized in 1791. Um, other things that are going to that are uh, coming down the pike like that, like uh, where we have a case they decided to hear that decides whether um, domestic abusers can have their guns taken away, um, and it's a very it's in a very egregious case. But t- Thomas's um, reasoning is likely going to say, well, domestic abuse wasn't even uh, a law. And I mean, it wasn't it wasn't unlawful to abuse your domestic partner in 1791. So how can we have a gun law about it? Like, this is the craziness that we have coming down the pipe. But the consequences that, which are happening on a daily basis with teenagers who clearly are not mature enough to understand what's going on. The Washington Post article points out that in Valdosta, Georgia, a 16-year-old bought a ghost gun kit online in 2021 and assembled her own Glock-style pistol. One day, while some friends were at her house, the teen accidentally shot a 14-year-old in the head, leaving him partially paralyzed with severe brain damage and permanent physical and cognitive issues. The family yep. then sued Polymer 80 for selling the gun. Now, Polymer 80's also been, they can no longer sell their guns, these gun kits, these ghost guns, in the District of Columbia. They're settling a case in the city of Los Angeles, apparently. And uh, they also cannot sell their gun kits in California without serializing the guns. So there seems to be some pushback. Do you oh, see there's this? A, there's, a massive, there's a massive amount of pushback, but the problem is that the, the things are so... E- they're so easy to obtain anywhere else. And if you're a kid 
in, I don't know, pick a state, in Oklahoma, who receives one of these, it's not difficult to pop it in a UPS box and ship it to somebody in California. Um, because, the, uh, you know, an 18-year-old kid with, a, like, like you said, a debit card in Oklahoma can get the thing in, in UPS and just put a new label on it. It's not difficult. Is, is it? Is it? Are places like California trying to regulate them or D.C.? Yes, they are. But um, because there's no licensing required, because they don't have to ship to a licensed dealer, because there's no background check that has to be done on them, it's quite difficult to, you know, to get your arms around it. So it's my understanding, Ryan, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this recent mass shooting on the streets of Baltimore, where yeah. a guy just came yeah. out with an yeah, a assault rifle. Wasn't that a ghost gun? Yeah, guy had a ghost gun. Yeah, it was a it was a kitted gun, eighty uh, percent gun. So yes, one of yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this. He had two guns. One of them was a ghost gun. That's correct. And it was a an AR-15 style ghost gun, wasn't it? it wasn't a pistol? Cor- correct. Yes. So that's incredibly lethal. Those bullets. Oh yeah, well, do so much damage. Of the, most of the so there's two types of ghost guns that are most prolific: um, Glock style, polymer style handguns which this guy had one, but it wasn't a ghost gun, and AR-15 receivers. Um, the receiver is the bottom part of the gun that's the serial or serialized part of the gun, So, or normally the serialized part of the gun. So they sell those in 80% kits, give you a little jig, and tell you how to use a Makita drill to drill a couple holes and make a couple indentions, and then, boom, you have your own, you have your own gun. So this would seem to be something that you could get a consensus on. Couldn't you? I mean, you say we just moved too far to the right, that no longer rationality, decency. Well, we have a consensus on a lot of things that we don't seem to move on. You know, know, a good example, since 1999 in Columbine, um, universal background checks, which um, were the fact that we don't have them, were exploited by the shooters in Columbine. But universal background checks have pulled somewhere between 75 and 85 percent across the country every year since 1999. And here we are in 2023 and we still have not passed universal background checks. Yet we have a very clear national consensus on this. The reason it does not happen is because because guns have become guns and gun radicalization have become a totemic sort of issue for the right. The. The analogy I like to use is, and even many Republican lawmakers know, know there's a bad issue, right? And if, it, and if these things poll at 85%, the lots of Republican voters know there's a, there's a problem with them. But it's like a beam in your house, and, and the Republicans are looking up at that going, well, there's asbestos flaking off of that, and eventually we're all going to get cancer. And then somebody says, yeah, but don't replace the beam. If you replace that beam in our house, the whole house falls down. Let's just take our chances with the cancer. In other words, it is their totemic beam in, in their politics. Nothing is as important, nothing is as symbolic as gun radicalization. And so things with consensus, like background checks, or in this case, um, ghost gun regulation, can't seem to pass because they're fearful of yanking on that beam. So you can't undo it, in other words, is the original sin, for the want of a better description, the Heller decision that Scalia pushed through, which put the cart before the horse. You know, originally the, the founding well, father Heller said... Left the door, Heller left the door open to a lot of regulation. In fact, there are very specific clauses. I don't remember them, but um, Scalia says in Heller that this should essentially says this decision should not mean that there's not, that you can't have reasonable gun regulation. So Heller left a lot of room open for that. This Bruin decision, on the other hand, Clarence Thomas's originalist decision, I mean, if you want to go back to 1791 and look at all the sorts of laws that didn't exist, I mean, this is the same. This is the same rationale they used in Dobbs in the in the abortion decision. Like, you, you have to go back 150, 200 years and and divine what sort of laws were then. Like, I'm telling you, <laughs> that is going to frighten some people because we didn't have this broad. First off, we didn't have a country with 325 million people in it, with 425 million guns, um, with a complex, you know multiracial, multireligious society like we have now. Um, I, I don't know how we're going to govern it simply with the laws of 1791. Well, just in closing, though, Ryan, the, one of the frightening things is that you have a presidential candidate, Donald Trump, who's inciting violence. And you've got people like yes. Carrie Lake who made real threats about 30, what she said, something like 75 million NRA members or whatever it was are ready to, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. 
If, You're going to have to go through us, she said. Yeah. yeah, but as the election season heats up and if Trump goes to jail or whatever, uh, we could have people on the streets with these guns, couldn't we? Yes. In fact, I think it's quite likely um, both of those things happen. I think, I think that we've marched our country right up to a pretty dangerous precipice. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know where the relief valves are, but we damn sure need to find them. Well, Ron Boosie, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And again, I'd be speaking with Ron Boosie, he's a former firearms executive who helped build one of the world's most iconic gun companies and was nominated multiple times by industry colleagues for the prestigious Shooting Industry Person of the Year Award. Currently, he provides consulting services to progressive organizations with the aim to undo the country's dangerous radicalization and is the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the just-concluded NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. Got past crossing someday, so you walk that way, I'll walk this way. And there's kids playing guns in the street, and one's pointing his tree branch at me. And so I put my hands up, I say, Enough is enough. If you walk away, I'll walk away. And he shot me dead. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Golgaya, professor in the School of International Relations at American University and a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and a visiting fellow at the Center for the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He was previously director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council. And his books include America Between the Wars, From 11.9 to 9.11, Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. And he has an article at War on the Rocks, NATO, China, and the Vilnius Summit. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Golgai. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, James. And the NATO Summit has ended, and... President Biden made a pretty rousing speech in a square in Vilnius, Lithuania, which ended with the crowd chanting USA, 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 which is the kind of thing that happens at a Trump rally. (laughs) But uh, he made an extremely strong statement about support for Ukraine and also aimed pretty squarely at Putin, more or less saying, you know, you think that you're going to wear us out but it's not going to happen. What did you take away from it? Well, the uh, the NATO allies have been unified since the start of this war, that uh, they need to do uh, what they can to support Ukraine and to help Ukraine liberate its territory from uh, this horrible Russian aggression. And uh, the big fear has been that Putin would just think he can wait the West out. Uh, you know, Ukraine does, I mean, they're doing the fighting and dying. But they do depend on the West for uh, the military supplies. Uh, they need our assistance from the United States, from Europe, and uh, and, and elsewhere. And they're getting it. Uh, but the fear, of course, is that Putin will just think, "Look, you know, I just have to hang in there till after the 2024 presidential election in the U.S. And if my buddy Donald Trump comes back, then you know, new president in 2025." And I don't have to worry about this anymore. And, you know, President Biden wants to send the message. You there's there's nowhere for you to go. We're, we're going to keep doing this uh, and we're going to do this for as long as it takes. So it was important that he went and delivered that message again. So but how do you reconcile the idea that he's hinting Biden that America and its NATO allies think that this confrontation, this war could go on for years at the same time? You've got the possibility of Trump coming back, and of course Trump is totally in Putin's pocket, so that would end the war right away. Is that are there contingency plans? What does NATO do if Trump comes back? Or you know, what do we do as a country if Trump comes back? That's a larger yeah. Issue, well, those are all, yeah. Well, those are all, those are all good questions. Uh, you know, I think with respect to the war, I, look, I I think the Biden administration they're the ones in office right now. Uh, they're in office until January of 2025, at least, not for another four years after that. And so they have to proceed on the assumption that they're going to do what they need to do now uh, in this year and next year 
Uh, and I think they, you know, they can't be spending too much time uh, thinking about who's going to be president in January of 2025, especially since President Biden is running for re-election. So I assume he thinks it's going to be him uh, and, uh, you know, wants to continue on that basis. NATO, there is this larger issue at NATO because it's not just about support for the war, but it's about whether the United States is going to remain in NATO uh, because we know that President Trump thought about uh, taking the U.S. out of NATO. His national security advisor, John Bolton, said that he thinks if Trump had won a second term, the president would have taken the United States out of NATO. And so the Europeans are rightly worried that they have what is potentially an unreliable ally in the United States, but they're kind of stuck because they're hugely dependent on the United States for their defense. We can see that dependency during this war. This war depends heavily on the United States' ability to, to be a strong NATO ally, NATO leader, and supply Ukraine. And so I think everybody's just focused right now on what they need to do to get Ukraine the assistance it needs to liberate more territory and to go about the business of reconstruction. Well, there's been some reports that there's a bit of friction with Zelensky and, and some of the NATO leaders, even perhaps President Biden. You know, he's obviously annoyed about not getting any kind of concrete promise of when, not so much if, but when he can join NATO. He said that, that I believe that we will be in NATO as soon as the security situation is stabilized, in simple terms, the moment the war is over. Obviously, you can't join NATO in the middle of a war because of Article 5. That would mean that you'd immediately be at war with Russia, right? Yeah, I, th I mean, that's, you know, sort of that's the general thinking. I, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge because... For those of us who believe that the only way to secure Ukraine in the long term and to avoid this constant threat of Russian aggression is to bring Ukraine into NATO, uh, because we know that Russia doesn't want a war with NATO. Uh, Russia, you know, Russia hasn't attacked uh, NATO members militarily during this war. They're being just as careful about trying to prevent a NATO-Russia war as the West has been. So because of that, you do have this sentiment that Ukraine can really only come in when there's an end to this fighting. The problem is when you say that, okay, if you say Ukraine will come in when the war is over, then that you're giving Putin an incentive to keep the war going. So there's a, there's a lot of tensions in this policy. And I think what we saw at the summit was that the, the NATO allies are still quite undecided uh, about this prospect of Ukraine joining and when it should join and what it needs, whether there are other things it needs to do before it joins. And so, uh, you know, they came out with a statement in the summit declaration uh, that Ukraine will receive an invitation when allies can agree and when conditions are met, which was pretty vague. And it is what set off Zelensky initially. And of course, he, he did then get himself back to a situation where he could, which I think he needed to do, express gratitude to the West for the support it's providing and to call the summit a success because he got a lot of commitments from the G7 uh, about security and economic assistance. And he doesn't want to jeopardize that by seeming to be ungrateful for what the West is doing. So there's a, there's a lot of delicate dancing here. And what about the notion that Ukraine could follow the Israel model, which Zelensky himself has mentioned before. In other words, have a, a powerful military with a lot of Western support, but not a membership in an alliance. Right. This is this is something the Biden administration folks have been talking about really since um, sort of end of last summer, early fall, twenty twenty two. Uh, this idea that, as with Israel, the United States could provide, uh, and its allies could provide significant amount of assistance to Ukraine. Uh, in the Israel case, it's called having a qualitative military edge over its adversaries. Uh, and the idea would be that you would provide Ukraine with so much equipment to enable it to defend itself, uh, and that that would be its security commitment without the kind of security guarantee that comes with NATO membership. 
and that could be enough to deter Russia. I, I think there's still a lot of questions about whether the model is appropriate. And one of the issues when you talk about the Israel model is Israel not only receives that kind of assistance from the United States, but uh, it also has nuclear weapons. And uh, we don't want Ukraine to have to feel like it has that it needs nuclear weapons. So that, that that's why sometimes you hear people talk about the Israel minus model. When they say Israel minus, that means without nuclear weapons. And also Israel since, you know, for 50 years now has had bipartisan support for this assistance. And I think there's every reason, as we were just talking at the outset about perhaps a change in presidency. We know there's some Republicans who are opposed to the assistance. There's some Democrats who are opposed to the levels of assistance to Ukraine. And so, you know, can we really make that kind of bipartisan long-term commitment to Ukraine that we've made to Israel? I think that's an open question. So let's turn to your article at War on the Rocks, James Golgaya, NATO, China, and the Vilnius Summit. It's interesting to note that at the summit, there were a number of Indo-Pacific, well, Pacific countries particularly there. The Prime Minister of Australia was there, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan were observers. So what's going on with NATO expansion into the Indo-Pacific? Well, these are countries that have been partners for a long time. They've been part of sort of the global partnership for NATO. Uh, the four that you mentioned were invited for the first time to the Madrid summit in 2022. And um, it's uh, uh, it's interesting to see how this is developing. The, the four countries are getting these individual enhanced partnership programs with NATO. The one with Japan is the furthest along. There had even been some discussion about setting up a liaison office in Japan for NATO. Uh, President Macron of France uh, rejected that idea, uh, concerned about the impact on relations with China. Uh, but I think what you're seeing is this war has caused a recognition that these two theaters, the European theater and the Indo-Pacific theater, are not uh, so disconnected, that there are connections. Every, you know, Everyone in Asia is watching what's happening in Europe uh, to try to think about what that means for a potential scenario involving a Chinese attack on Taiwan as the Russians attacked Ukraine. Uh, and I think you're seeing a desire on the part of, you know, what we often call like-minded countries, these, these democracies uh, from both the Indo-Pacific and, and from Europe uh, and North America uh, to try to look for ways to enhance their cooperation. So what has been uh, China's reaction so far to this uh, summit and to the inclusion of these Pacific uh, nations like Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand? Well, you know, I think, you know, China, you know, reads the, the summit declaration very closely. Uh, and uh, like the Madrid summit, the uh, Vilnius summit declaration uh, clearly articulates that China poses a threat, but also offers uh, the hope uh, there, there can be uh, partnerships created uh, and that there can be, you know, good transparency and that there can be efforts to try to create cooperation uh, between NATO and China. And I, I think, you know, a lot of this has to do with the kind of things that Secretary Blinken tried to accomplish on his recent visit to China when he was unsuccessful in restarting military to military cooperation, I think there's at least a hope that the militaries uh, can engage with one another in order to try to reduce the prospects of misunderstandings and miscalculations. But, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the way that China talks about Taiwan and the threat that China poses to Taiwan is what's causing this kind of reaction uh, in the same way that countries have reacted to the threat of Russian aggression uh, broadly in Europe and, of course, the specific horror, horrifying uh, attacks. Uh, not only the war, the military battles in Ukraine, but the uh, horrific attacks on civilians. So, uh, you know, that, that's why you're getting a reaction. I mean, you know, China, China's behavior is what's causing this reaction. And so uh, I, I think that 
if it wants to see a different reaction, then it's going to need to take a different approach. So just in the last uh, minute then, uh, James Golgo, it's clear to just about everybody, and perhaps except Vladimir Putin, what a catastrophe this war has been for Russia and will continue to be, With particularly with a new 800-mile front now opened up with NATO through Finland's entry and now Sweden, uh, these neutral countries. It's just almost unthinkable that this is happening. And, you know, the recent uh, so-called mutiny by Prigozhin has clearly shown a weakness on Putin's part. You know, he sets a red line and said, you know, this guy's stabbed me in the back and we're going to get him. And then a few days later, he has a three-hour meeting with him. And we still don't know what the hell's going on there. And I'm just wondering whether, for example, Turkey's change of attitude, even though, of course, it was basically you know, successful blackmail on Erdogan's part, and he may not have gotten that much, and he obviously needs Western help because he's, he's mismanaged the economy in a catastrophic way. But do you think that's a factor? Maybe in Erdogan's mind that Putin's now looking weak? and maybe in China's mind that Putin's now looking weak. I mean, they're spending some, a lot of time talking with their Russian uh, Prime Minister, Mishushkin. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, in the Chinese, I mean, they, I mean they're, they're sort of stuck with Putin. Uh, Xi Jinping is stuck with him. Um, and I think the thing he fears the most would be a change in, in regime in Russia in which someone came to power in Russia who wanted a rapprochement with the West. I mean, that's what... Xi Jinping really doesn't want. He wants a Russia that's joining with him in uh, in pushing back against uh, what he sees as sort of, you know, the U.S. hegemony, U.S. dominance of the international system. And, um, uh, you know, whether or not, I mean, it would, I, I, hopefully the Chinese are playing an important role in keeping Putin from thinking about the use of nuclear weapons. And it would be great if China could play a role uh, in trying to help produce a peaceful outcome to the war that doesn't involve Russia occupying lots of Ukrainian territory. On Turkey, I think, you know, uh, Erdogan goes with where he thinks he can get what he needs. Um, and I think we have to assume that he got credible assurances that he would get the F-16s that he wants. And obviously, the administration has work to do with the Congress in order to get him that. But it's hard for me to see how he would have uh, agreed to this, all, what he has, all he's agreed to is that he's going to uh, have it voted on in the parliament. So there's still time for him to try to squeeze out a few more things uh, if he's if he's in the mood to continue to bargain. And he does seem to like to bargain. So I don't know that we've seen the end of it, but uh, it's important. Turkey's an important NATO member. It's important to keep him in NATO, uh, and uh, it's important to try to uh, repair what has been a, a very a difficult relationship. Well, James Golgar, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with James Golgar, who's a professor in the School of International Relations at American University and a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University and a visiting fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. He was formerly the director of Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council and he's the author of Power and Purpose, U.S. Policy Towards Russia After the Cold War, and Not Whether But When, the U.S. Decision to Enlarge NATO. And he has an article at War on the Rocks, NATO, China, and the Vilnius Summit. We're going to take a restation break and back examining the extent to which Turkey's Erdogan did not steal the limelight at the summit and did not end up with much. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Henri Barkey, who's a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, an adjunct senior fellow in the Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, the Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence, and has authored, co-authored, and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question and Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Henri Barkey. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Henri. And uh, the NATO summit has wrapped up. And, of course, President Erdogan, to some extent, stole the show by suddenly reversing himself and accepting Sweden's entry into NATO. Obviously, blackmail works. But then he was with President Biden, all hugs and kisses, my best friend, President Biden. This is after running a, a presidential campaign recently basically uh, an anti-American presidential campaign against the Biden administration. So um, what do you think? They just, uh, this is real politique. They bury the hatchet and all smiles. Well, the truth of the matter is that Biden actually played this one quite well and that Erdogan had to cave in because uh, it became very clear that not only in the United States, but also within NATO, anger against Erdogan's tactics, brinksmanship, one-man showmanship, was really uh, getting people very, very angry. So he realized that he had to essentially make it look like it's a victory. Of course, everything he does at home is sold as a victory. In fact, yesterday's newspapers came out as you know, great accomplishment. Turkey and the EU are talking again about uh, Turkey's uh, application and so on and so forth. But none of that really is what really happened. What happened was that he basically got promise from the Biden administration that Turkey, the United States would sell Turkey F-16s. But that's something that the Biden administration had promised months ago, a year ago. I mean, this is something that the F-16s are aircraft that Turkey needs because the Turkish Air Force is in pretty bad shape. Turkey has, cannot buy the fifth-generation aircraft F-35s because it made certain mistakes, which we can talk later. But the point here is that he got essentially what Biden offered him a while ago. What the difference between, let's say, a few months ago and today and yesterday was that it became clear that the U.S. Congress, both Senate and House, will put certain conditions on the sale of the F-16, but will approve the F-16s. And Erdogan would not have gotten the F-16s if he had continued blocking Sweden's accession. And Congress was very adamant about that. And what I expect now is that you will see some understanding coming out from from both the Senate and the House that uh, Turkey will get the F-16s provided it promises not to use them against another NATO country, which means Greece. That's what the Turks were using the aircraft against. So he got nothing. Right. Yes, he became maybe, as you, you said, uh, the man of the hour, so to say, because everybody was expecting him to to say something about Sweden, right? But that's it. Well, yesterday I spoke with Ahmet Yayla, who was a counterterrorism police chief in Turkey and a former chair of the sociology department at Haran University in Turkey. And he was quite outspoken. And he said that the main reason that, I guess to use your description, Henri, that he caved in uh, was that Erdogan has ruined the Turkish economy. Uh, Inflation's at about 100%, and uh, he can't turn to Russia for any help. Russia's not in a position to bail him out. Only the West can bail him out, and the NATO countries in Europe. So do you agree with that analysis? 100%. I mean, I've been arguing this for a long time. I've expected Erdogan to cave precisely because of that. In fact, you will notice maybe yesterday, uh, in, uh, he came in to, to Vilnius and said, well, he brought in a new precondition that he wants talks on the EU to restart again. In fact, he knows that those talks are dead. That will not happen. 
However, what he really is aiming for is for an improved customs union agreement with Europe because in the next few months, he's going to have to take drastic economic action and he needs a number of things. He needs uh, foreign direct investments. He needs better access to Western markets for Turkish exports. And in fact, if you look at uh, Turkish exports, 50% plus go to Western countries. Between the United States and, and nine European countries, they get more than 50% of Turkish Turkey's export, uh, exports. That's what's important for Turkey. It's not the money that will come from um, Mr. Shimshek, the economies are going to Saudi Arabia or the UAE. What matters is exporting sophisticated manufacturing goods, which Turkey can, right? Because that creates employment, that that creates um, know-how, and and he has very good, you know, other benefits for it. So he needs direct foreign investment, and he needs that. He also needs um, for the Biden administration and the Europeans to kind of whisper to markets, to Wall Street, etc., that Turkey is okay to invest in. Because at the moment, investors are very worried about investing in Turkey. If you look at the State Department's advisory on investing in Turkey, one of the things they talk about is the absence of the rule of law. I.e., you can invest there, but if Erdogan decides to take it over, there's nothing you can do about it. So people are reluctant to 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 invest, and um, so the, that atmosphere has to change. And eventually, eventually, Turkey may go for an IMF plan, in which case it will need the support of the West because the IMF essentially the money in the IMF comes from Western countries. There's nothing Russia or China or um, Middle Eastern countries can do to get Turkey out of its economic mess. So the other thing that Ahmed Yela said uh, yesterday, uh, Henri, was that he believes that Erdogan's family is a kind of a crime family, a kleptocracy, and he may be the most corrupt leader in the world. And that seems extraordinary. I mean, maybe he's among the most corrupt, but... Is that essentially one of the reasons why the EU won't let him in, apart from the fact that he's jailing journalists and academics? And I think you're on the list, aren't you, as well? Yes. As... Um, well, look, the reason, I mean, the I think the negotiations were blocked in by the French and the Germans in 2009, so maybe a little bit later, I can't remember the exact date. But the, the, the real reason it has been that Turkey's descent into authoritarianism and it's the corruption, it's the lack of the rule of law that is blocking Turkey's entry into Europe, into Europe. And for all intents and purposes, Turkey is not going to get into Europe. Now, it is true that European countries were somewhat reluctant and worried about a large Muslim country of 80 plus million people um, coming into Europe with, you know, when you get a European uh, citizenship or European pa passport, so to say, you can go anywhere you want. So there's always been that fear, right? But Erdogan did not make it easier for Turkey by essentially becoming a populist authoritarian leader who just basically jails anybody on a whim and, there's, and also doesn't doesn't obey or live up to the agreements uh, he, uh, he has signed with other countries. For instance, the European Court of Human Rights. By the Turkish constitution, it is the highest court of appeal, so to say, um, because Turkey is part of the European community, not the European Union. And um, so if the European Court of Human Rights makes a decision, you have to obey it. The European Court of Human Rights has said that Osman Kavala has to be released because he was judged. Um, it was not a fair, fair trial. Same thing for Selatin Demirtas, the leader of the Kurdish party. Both have been in jail now for more than six years. Erdogan said, no, we're not going to recognize that. I mean, this is like saying the, the, the state of Iowa will not recognize you, uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States because they decided they're not 
uh, right? I mean, it's not exactly equivalent, but it's similar. Right? You you signed on to this, and then you say, I'm not going to... So there's no way Turkey under Erdogan will be ever admitted into the EU. So does he have a lot of leverage, though, with the refugees, all the Syrian refugees and the others from Afghanistan and other countries that are in camps in Turkey? I mean, he's already dumped a whole bunch of them on Europe a few years back, well, and that created enormous amounts of problems with, within Europe itself. So does he have this leverage, well, and is he likely to use it? Yes and, yes and no. He, of course, has the leverage. He can do it. I mean, it's also very difficult to um, suddenly take people who have now li- been living in Turkey, not in camps, but in society in general, have made lives for themselves. And what, you're going to go and close down a, a grocery store and because they're run by Syrians and then take those Syrians and send them to Europe? Ah, it doesn't work that way. One. Two, if you were to do something like this, then the Turkish economy would crash because the Europeans and the Americans would probably impose not only economic sanctions, but they would just stop helping Turkey financially. At which point, the Turkish economy, which has run out of foreign currency, um, will completely crash. And that will be the end of Erdogan. The opposition cannot bring Erdogan down, but the economy can. That's one. However, I would add one wrinkle, though. Today, Erdogan announced that he will submit um, the Swedish um, NATO accession uh, legislation to Parliament after Parliament comes back from summer recess, which is October 1st, which means between now and October 1st, you can expect that there will be more shenanigans. He will complain. He will, you know, he. I, I don't think this is going to be, shall we say, an easy period. Um, and he may try to extract more concessions uh, during uh, this time or make make more demands that will, of course, cause the White House and other chancelleries around the world to waste time trying to uh, push back, trying to negotiate with them, trying to um, essentially reason with them. So that's that's the, the at the moment, the one, um, shall we say, ointment um, in, in, uh, in the deal because he's going to play this for all he can. And that's what he does. I mean, that's his modus operandi. But his recent election, which of course was completely rigged in as much as the most likely presidential candidate that could have beaten him was kept out of the race because of threats of going to jail over insulting Erdogan, which is extraordinary that there's such a law in the first place. But it seems to some extent that his anti-American election campaign worked. So where, where are the Turkish people? Are they, I mean, here they have got a terrible economy. This dictator and autocrat and kleptocrat bungled the massive earthquake relief following that deadly earthquake. And yet he's able to blame everything on the West and then suddenly turn around after cozying up to Putin, suddenly turns around and now he's Joe Biden's best friend. I mean, what's going on with the Turkish people? Do they... Are they anti-American? First of all, he's not Joe Biden's best friend. Um, that means really nothing. Erdogan says all kinds of things, which he he's going to be meeting the Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis, I think, today or tomorrow. And the last time he mentioned Mitsotakis was that Prime Minister Mitsotakis was a, no, not, a, a nobody. He would never talk to him again. And you will see that tomorrow or when they meet, they'll be all smiles and shaking hands and stuff like that. Erdogan can say whatever he wants and get away with it because at home, nobody calls him uh, to account, right? He controls the press, he controls everything. And if you cross him, you end up in jail. One. Two, I would like to say something about the elections, though. I think the elections were dirty. They were not fair. But I still think he won them. But he really won them because the opposition was... Terrible. The leader of the opposition, you mentioned that the most important candidate who could have beaten him was not allowed to run. But he was not allowed to run, not by Erdogan. 
but by the leader of the opposition. The leader of the opposition, Mr. Kalishtarov, was so desperately wanted to be to to run against Erdogan that he he essentially sacrificed the country for his own, shall we say, benefit, or would, uh, what he thought was the benefit. Right? Had the mayor of Istanbul, Mr. Imamoglu, had been presented, yes, there was a uh, there's a jail sentence pending on him that Erdogan would have used to um, disbar- uh, eliminate him from the from the election. It didn't matter. All you had to do is present him and let Erdogan send him to jail, and then there would have been a backlash, which we have seen in the past when Erdogan does things like that in the country, and he would have lost. Or he would have allowed Mr. Imamoglu to run against him, in which case Erdogan would have looked weak, and Imamoglu would have beaten him. But the reason Imamoglu did not run is not because of Erdogan. It is because of the leader of the opposition who blocked him. And so we can't really blame Erdogan. Yes, he ran a dirty election, but the opposition could have won this. And that's not the only mistake they, they um, That's not the only mistake they made. But they did not. Usually, in Turkey... The opposition and well, whoever is, I mean, the, 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 the incumbent party and the opposition parties have representatives at each ballot box. And when the results are tabulated at the ballot box, each party gets a copy of the, uh, the results, right? And then they send the results to their headquarters in Ankara and where Ankara can cross-check, etc. Well, I think in more than 50% of the ballot boxes, there was no opposition folks tabulating the results. I mean, this is inconceivable. You know the guy is dirty, and you don't man, man the boxes. That's, that's crim- almost criminal, I would say. And third, the opposition did not have an economic plan. The most important crisis in Turkey is the economic crisis. And they had no plan that they could, that I, you know, I was, I, I, I'm interested in these issues. I follow them. I, would try, I was trying to understand what it is they would, they would offer. There was nothing. They couldn't come together. Six political parties couldn't come together and come up with an economic plan. So why do you want people to vote for him, for them? They ran a better campaign than before, yes. But it was still wildly unsatisfactory. Well, Henri, I thank you for filling us in on. I, did, I didn't realize that it was so much of the fault of the opposition and how feckless and useless they were. And I appreciate you joining us here today. And, and the word, the word you, <laughs> you said it better than I did, feckless and useless. And again, I've been speaking with Henri Barkey, he's a professor of international relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, an adjunct senior fellow of Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He served as a member of the United States State Department's policy planning staff, working primarily on the Middle East, Eastern Mediterranean, and intelligence, and has authored and co-authored and edited five books, among them Turkey's Kurdish Question and Reluctant Neighbor, Turkey's Role in the Middle East. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.